Hallelujah. Boy, in times like these, uh, to come together to worship. I received a phone call this week with everything going on in our world, locally, globally. Phone call from dear saint said, can we just pray? Can we have a time just to pray this weekend in the service or sometime? God's already laid it on somebody's heart to lead that between services. Praise God. Nothing like going to our refuge, our rock, our fortress in these troubled times in which we live. COVID-19, this pandemic, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, Afghanistan, Jan and Marty, Stanton, gender issues, Jamie, you made it down, brother. Jamie and Kim Mason are with us. Boy, I'm seeing old faces. This is fun. Those are bright things in the middle of dark stuff. The transient, the homeless situation in our communities, drugs, gender issues that are in our face all the time, the neighbor's dog that won't start barking all night. <laughs> Construction in our streets, all the traffic. Three cars in front of me ticks me off. <laughs> People drag racing at night out on the hook. Hood Canal Bridge closes. Where does it end? Where does it end all these troubles? Jesus did say... In this world, you will have trouble. We've got a slew of trouble going on around us, don't we? We do, and I don't make light of any of them because they're real. As petty as some of them can be, when we face them, they're real. If they make our blood pressure go up, they're real. Doesn't matter what it is, it's real. From the heavy stuff, the big stuff, the stuff that impacts our lives, to the small things that impact our lives, that are inconveniences, whatever it is, they are trouble. And they make our blood pressure go up, and whatever else it may cause us to react in. No doubt you could add plenty to this list. So let me ask a question. In the midst of all these things, where's the fruit of the Spirit? Where's the love? Where's the joy in the midst of these things? Where's the peace? Where's the kindness? Where's the patience? Where's the faithfulness? Where's the gentleness, which we'll talk about today? And where's the self-control that Pastor Aaron will preach on next week? Kind of not looking forward to that. (laughs) To be honest with you all, I have loved our study of the fruit of the Spirit. Have you? 
Hasn't it been good? I, I just love it. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. They are uplifting. They, they give us really a higher calling, as in every sermon ought to give us a higher calling. These are practical uh, qualities, characteristics of godliness that God is doing in us as we seek him, and there is no consideration of our circumstances. In fact, the darker the circumstances, the more these things stand out. And that is God doing that in us and through us for his glory. Thank you, IBC family, for yielding yourselves to God to allow him to saturate you with his characteristics, with himself, and then to see that oozing, glowing, shining out of you. It is a beautiful thing to see. I've been in discussions, conversations. I've been in meetings, planning sessions. And when we talk about our circumstances, especially now as things starting to feel more tense now as we go, it's been clearly evident that the fruit of the Spirit are in you. And it's a beautiful thing to experience. You don't have to turn the television on very long before you hear a lot of yelling and anger and a lot of carrying on. Let us continue to yield ourselves to God. Every day, every moment, that he might saturate us with his godliness, with his fruit of the Spirit. It is of the Spirit. As we keep saying, it is not something we conjure up within us, it is God in us. It's a challenge. As I have been studying gentleness, I I have concluded, not definitively, that the this part, this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit called gentleness is one of the hardest for us. Now next week, Pastor Aaron will talk on self-control, and maybe that one's even be harder. I don't know. I'm looking forward to hearing, and I'm glad your brother bringing that to us. But I think they go right hand in hand, as we will find out. So what is gentleness? What is gentleness? It's very interesting, because when you look the word up to find out what was the Greek word, what was the original word that was used in Scripture, it doesn't matter to us what that Greek word is, but the word is prautes. I'll just say it anyway. sounds more scholarly. There is no English equivalent word for it. It doesn't exist. And sometimes in a different language, there are words that just have the right meaning, but there's not an English equivalent, and this is one of those words. It doesn't exist. And so you will find, we will find the word gentleness used here. We'll find the word meekness. We'll find humility and so forth that are used kind of interchangeably for this word. And so... My prayer, as we study here this morning a little bit, 
is that when we leave, we will have a deeper understanding. We can wrap our minds around what this word means. As a, as a part of the fruit of the Spirit, I want to exhibit gentleness. And I'll know what that means. Or I'll have a, a deeper understanding of what that means. And we pursue that as we're called to do. But God is working that in us. Maybe the bottom line is this. Here's what, what it, the, um, the meaning might be if I were to explain it just in a phrase. A genuine consideration for others. A genuine consideration for others. We need to let that sink in. A genuine, a real, caring consideration for others. So in all of our interactions, as I am discussing whatever it is, it is flavored, it is motivated by my genuine concern for whoever it is I'm having a conversation with. I'm looking out for their best. There's so many implications to that. Because so much of the time, in our flesh, in our egos, we have to protect ourselves. And so these two things of gentleness, of of a genuine consideration for others, and my own self-protection and my own pride are at war with each other. This word describes power under control. That rang a bell with me. When we were going through Matthew, way back in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, Pastor Aaron had assigned Pastor Mike to preach on meekness. Blessed are the meek. And that word meek, power under control. Because it has the same root. It's power under control. Just as wisdom is the right use of knowledge. Wisdom is applied knowledge and used correctly. So gentleness is the right use of authority and power. Gentleness is the correct or the right use of power and authority. It's the right use of power and authority. You use it well. You use it rightly. So if you are in power or you are in authority... You use that, you leverage it right for other people's well-being is what that means. That's what gentleness is. You'll notice there's power all over this thing. And one thing we need to understand, gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is not spinelessness. It is not a wet noodle. It really is all about the power and having that power be under total control. Ray Stedman describes meekness as strength under control, adding that it is real strength. It is real strength, but it doesn't have to display itself or show off how strong it is. It doesn't have to show off how strong it is. There is nothing so strong as gentleness and nothing so gentle as real strength. It's just really a beautiful blend of strength and gentleness of meekness, of mildness. This word, prautes, was used in secular Greek writings to describe a soothing wind, 
a healing medicine and a colt that had been broken. Constable, a writer many, a long time ago, uh, in his note on this particular verse that we're looking at in uh, Galatians 5.23, in non-biblical literature, he used it to describe a horse that someone had broken and had trained to submit to a bridle. It pictures strength under control, specifically the Holy Spirit's control. The evidence of this attitude is a deliberate placing of oneself under divine authority. And when we talk about the tongue, and James talks much about the tongue, the only way to control the tongue is to place one's mind deliberately under the authority of God and to let him control it. So back to this horse illustration. I love this horse illustration. In fact, I have a video for you. Shall we watch this now, Mary? Hope you haven't gone to sleep on me yet. Good morning, IBC family. We're taking a little visit up here to the Fours Homestead up here behind town this morning. Um, the, the book of James in uh, chapter 3, verse 3, says this. As we are talking about gentleness, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. And the illustration that we're given about a powerful animal like a horse being tamed to the point of allowing itself to be guided and controlled speaks to gentleness. I've asked Joe if he would explain a little bit about the process of taking a powerful animal like Pam here and uh, bringing it to a place where this can happen. So Joe, thanks brother for uh, allowing us to hear from you and, and learning along the way about gentleness in this way. You bet. Well, good morning, IBC family. As Pastor Tom said, this is Pam. Uh, we wanted to talk to you just a little bit about training a horse and how a horse becomes gentle. You see, a lot of people think that training a horse means that you break a horse. Well, that's not true. A good trainer, a good master actually gentles a horse, builds a confidence and a relationship with a horse. And so, Horses in the wild are naturally a flight or flight animal and they will want to run from humans and keep their distance. And so when a human first starts to begin to work with a horse, he teaches that horse that running away or doing the wrong thing is difficult. It causes pressure, it makes life kind of hard. But when a horse comes to you or a horse does the right thing, that pressure is removed and pretty soon they find that they take great comfort in being with that master. And so over time, the really important part is really building that relationship with your horse so that that horse can learn to have that confidence in his master. So I'll give you just a quick example. Many horses uh, will get great anxiety over things such as crossing water or being on a road with cars driving by. Um, and so, you will know that a horse is well-trained or properly gentled when that anxiety begins to go away because that horse is with his master. And I think there's great, uh, a, a great um, reality there when we take a look at how we gentle horses and our relationship with God because when we are in the closeness and in the presence of our master, we should be without anxiety as well and we should take great confidence in, in having that type of a relationship. 
I'll give you just one very quick story. Um, one of our other horses, not Pam here, but one of our other horses um, was born into a family that neglected him and didn't take good care of him. He eventually was sold to, um, uh, actually was going to for slaughter, and Kendra and I, um, we adopted him and saved him and brought him home. On the trailer ride home, he was so nervous and so full of anxiety that by the time he got out of the trailer, he was riddle, literally just wringing with sweat and scared to death. And over the course of about the next uh, only a week of really working with that horse and gentling with the, that horse, he became so confident in being with us that he no longer had those issues of anxiety and sweating and being all worked up. And I think that we can find that very same comfort and being in that type of a relationship with our God. So thank you. Isn't that great? Should we close in prayer? <laughs> thank you, Forzes, uh, for that. Uh, that. That horse, Pam, I'm not a horse person. Sue kind of scoffs at me and goes, you're scared of horses. I, I'm not, they're big. I've not been around them. I don't know their personality. I don't know what they're about. But to stand there with that beautiful horse, wonderful. It's just beautiful. Petting that horse. The thing is, that horse, as it's standing there, weighs 1,500 pounds. I don't know. It's huge, powerful, the muscles. If it were to lie on you, it would crush you. Imagine it were to fight you. It were angry with you. It has teeth, it can bite. It has hooves, it can strike. It can go fast, it can run, it can buck. It can do all those things in its wildness, in its strength and its power, it can do all those things. And yet, there is a picture of submission to its master. That is gentleness right there. That is the picture of gentleness. Oh, that we might be like that horse. Under the control of our master, the Lord himself, Submitting all the power that is in us, everything of who we are, submitting it to him and saying, you lead me. You show me what to say. You show me what to do. You show me what attitude I should have. That's gentleness. We can take it even a step further. Watch this next little clip. So a properly gentled horse can actually become so gentle and so confident in their human that even a child can properly control that horse. Come on, Pam. Come on. Come on. Next level, gentleness. Even a child. Kendra, when we were there, and thanks to Pastor Corey for doing the video and editing and so forth. Kendra pointed out, she goes, yeah, Pam is gentle right now, but you should see her out in the field when there's feed and other horses around. Not so gentle. And it was good. I was glad, actually glad to hear that because, okay, good. She's not really on some drug that is sedating her. This is the horse who has submitted herself and found great comfort in the hands of her master. Point number two is gentle Jesus. We have to look at Jesus, who shows us what it looks like then, because here's where we go with this. 
Point number three is gonna be our calling to gentleness. What does that look like in the world in which we live? What does it look like for us to be gentle, gentle people? But we have to look to Jesus, our model of gentleness. We know that Jesus, as God, manifested every aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. And so when we want to know what a, fruit, a piece of the fruit of the Spirit looks, love, joy, all of them, all nine of them, we look to Jesus because he showed us what those look like. It begins with worldview. It really does. Your outlook on life, what is your life all about? What is your life centered on? What is my life centered? Why, why do I live my life? For what purpose, to what end do I live my life? Well, in John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus says it all. It gives us a very uh, inside glimpse of to what Jesus was all about. In the first four verses, we read in John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, now he's praying to the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. All about the glory of the Father and the Son. That's what he lived for. And so that was his worldview, that he was on earth to glorify the Father, to draw people to himself and thus to the Father. So he submitted himself to that. So what did that look like as he went about his life? If you will turn to the book of John with me, we'll go to chapter eight, John chapter eight. Yeah, let's look in there. So I'll wait just for a second as you are turning on your machines or you're opening up your books, the Bible, to John chapter eight. And I want us to read this story And it is going to give us a picture of gentle Jesus, what this looked like. We are going to read the first um, verses here, 11 verses. Yes, this is the woman caught in adultery is the name of this, this little story that we have here. John 8, 1. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him. So here they are. Jesus is teaching. There's a crowd around him. In come the religious leaders, Sadducees and Pharisees, with this woman who has been caught in adultery, plopped her right in the middle of a whole crowd to confront Jesus, to catch him in a trap. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses... Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. 
And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. We have no idea what Jesus wrote in the dirt. There's much speculation, but we don't know. But when it was all said and done, nobody had a thing to say against her because everybody is guilty. This is, this is a picture of gentleness. Jesus, we must remember, is the king of kings. He is God. And these arrogant religious leaders come to him, and we know that God resists the proud. God hates pride. And this is a picture of that. Jesus could have hammered them there are times he does hammer them. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them pits of, a pit of vipers in other places and so forth. He didn't do that in this scene. Let him who is without sin throw the first stone. And they quietly walked away. Everybody walked away. Even the ones he had been teaching, everybody just cleared out. They're going, there's sin in my life. And there is the woman. And Jesus could have hammered her said, you sinful lady? He says, I have forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Wow. What a picture of gentle Jesus. King of kings. He has the power and the authority to forgive, to punish, to whatever. And this is his course of action. Power under control, gentleness. We have another picture of Jesus from his own mouth. In Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the King of Kings. All power in his hands, in his mouth, all power. He spoke the world into existence. And yet the tone of this paragraph that he utters is nothing but comfort and peace and gentleness. Come to me, you who are tired, and I will give you rest. I will give you peace. Oh, don't we need that today? Don't we need that today? I'm going to flip it around a little bit just for a moment. This is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in us. Is this true of us? Can you say, come to me, all who, are la- labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, come to me, and I will give you rest. Are, are we a people 
that people, when they interact with us, as disturbed as they may be, as agitated as they may be, that when they come and have a conversation with you, they walk away in peace. Calm down. That's what we're called to, brothers and sisters, in this day in which we live. That is what we are called to. That scene, the triumphal entry, it's called, when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. We read about it in Matthew 21. In verse five it says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming to you, humble. That word humble is gentle. It's the same word there that's used in the Greek. Your king is coming to you. The contrast that, that, that we have, that Matthew included in here, the king, the king of kings, all majesty is coming to you riding on a donkey. Gentle, meek, lowly, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Not on a war horse, not on a mighty steed with flames coming out of his nostrils and sparks coming off of his hooves, with thunderstruck of ACDC pounding in the background. That's what I want because that shows power and authority and squashing. Oh, that day's coming. <laughs> I don't think of ACDC, but there will still be all kinds of power. Can you believe ACDC was mentioned from the pulpit here at IBC? <laughs> I only know about it because I heard it at a Seahawks game. <laughs> that is a picture of gentleness. But the very next verses, after it finished, Jesus comes in and his Hosanna and all that, he comes in. Remember where he goes? He goes to the temple. And it says this, he, he, he walks in, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Wait a minute, what happened to that gentle, mild Jesus? And now he's overturning tables. And this is what we always talk about, righteous anger. We use this as an example of righteous anger. The very next verse talks about how he healed the lame and the blind. What a mix. What a mix that we see in Jesus. Aristotle, the philosopher from so long ago, defined gentleness as the correct mean or the correct balance between being too angry and being never angry at all. Never being angry and being too angry at somewhere the right balance in between. It is the quality of the man whose anger is so controlled that he is always angry at the right time and never at the wrong time. It describes the man who is never, never angry at any personal wrong he may receive. Never angry at any personal wrong he may receive. 
but who is capable of righteous anger when he sees others wronged. Because remember what we talked about at the beginning? In consideration of others. When we see what's happening in Afghanistan, isn't there a righteous anger? The way people are being mistreated, it just, it is unspeakable. When we think of what the Taliban does to people, it is unspeakable and there's a righteous anger and it's like, oh God, bring down your vengeance, stop it. We can take it to the next level that we read in Isaiah of King Jesus and his gentleness. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, Isaiah 53. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. I I just go back to the picture of the horse, of Pam the horse, who has yielded herself in obedience and submission in gentleness to her owners, to her master. Exactly what Jesus, the Son of God, did. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He did so, he submitted himself to the hand of the Master, his Father. As we know, he said in the garden, take this from me, he didn't want it, but not my will, thine be done, and I submit to that. That is gentleness. Jesus was omnipotent God, He was all-powerful God. All power in heaven and earth were at his disposal. At his disposal. At any time. And yet he submitted himself to sinful, unjust mankind. This is strength under control. He entrusted himself to the Father. He entrusted himself to the Father. And we are called to the same thing. We're called to the same thing. To entrust ourselves to the Father. Do we not believe that God is on mission? Do we not believe that God is sovereign? We say it a lot. Do we not believe that? For me, in my moments of I want to fight this thing. I want to be disturbed by this thing. I'm walking away. I'm turning my back on a belief that God is sovereign. That's what's happening, you all. When we do that, we are walking away from a belief and a trust that God is sovereign and that he has this. I I just go, what what would the perfect Christian look like then? The perfect Christian will look like Jesus. (laughs) That's easy enough. And what did Jesus do? He submitted himself to the will of the Father all the way to the cross. In its scorn, in its shame, in its ridiculousness. Because that's what the Father had. So what what about our call to gentleness? Romans 12.1 I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's 
To offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, for me to offer myself as a living sacrifice is to give all control to him. I'm gonna go back to, to Pam the horse. Pam the horse was offering herself as a living sacrifice. She was giving up her will to Joe. Willingly, because she trusts Joe. I love the way Joe described that relationship. That it takes time to build that relationship, even with a horse. And this powerful beast, once it gains trust and recognizes, hey, this master has my well-being in mind. And can then willingly submit. We're called to that. That's what we're called to. God's got this, you all. He's got every aspect. He's got this whole thing of the stuff we face with masks and vaccines and everything crazy going on in our world. We're called to submit ourselves to God's authority, his leading, and his purpose. His authority, his leading, and his purpose. We're called to that, to submit to that in literally every aspect of your life, in literally every moment of your life, in literally every attitude of your life, in literally every decision of your life, in literally every reaction and response in your life, everything about you, you are being invited to submit to the will of the Father. That is when and where the gentleness will be found in our lives is when we do that, when we submit all of ourselves to God's leading. I said earlier about the power that you have. Do you have power? You do have power. I'll answer the question. You do have power. Every one of us has power. We wield power. It's pretty amazing. You can be angry, and in your angry, you wield power. You, you have enthusiasm. As we sang those songs, it just couldn't help but lift our hands, our hearts to the Lord and clap and hallelujah, God has won. Your enthusiasm, your excitement is power. Your articulation, your speech, your tongue, your communication is all power. Whether it's positive or negative, it is power. The kind of words that you use, the tone, the inflection, all of that is power. You have physical actions, handshake, fist bump, hug, a fist, gestures, dancing, are all power. Facial expressions, sticking out your tongue, blowing a kiss, waving, all kinds of physical things that we can do that are powerful. Our thoughts. I love the verse in Proverbs that says, guard your heart above all, for it is the wellspring of life. Everything comes out of that. There's power in your heart because what you put in there, the word of God tells us, that's what comes out of you. So there's power there. Everything, everything, all of you 
has power to influence other people. When I was uh, in college, there were times, I remember telling Sue we were dating at the time, and I would just be done with everything. And I'm just tired of it. And I wanted to go to Alaska. That was my answer. I want to go to Alaska. I want to go to Alaska where nobody is and nobody matters. And it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't have any influence on anybody else. I just want to be in Alaska. So Kim and Jamie, I'm on my way, boys and girls. All right. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Because we never, somebody says no man is an island or woman is an island. Whenever there are two people, there is influence. And you can't escape it. You can say, oh, I just, I'm, I'm going to be quiet. I remember in high school, I remember in high school, in high school choir, I had just gotten kind of sick and tired of myself. And I, I'm just going to be quiet. And so I'm just going to, I'm not going to interact. I'm just going to stay to myself. And afterwards, the teacher, Tom, are you all right? It's like, Stop. Now, we all have power. Every one of you has a ton of power, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about gentleness, is bringing all of that power under the control of our Master, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Under the control of the Father. Ephesians 4.2 says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Colossians 3 tells us, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. There's the word gentleness and patience. Put those on. 2 Timothy tells us, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. This is how God would use our gentleness. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. He gives us a little glimpse of when we are gentle, the outcome is we win people over. He will do that in us us and through us. You know, we see the Bible as saturated with a call to gentleness. All through Scripture, there is a call. We could just spend the rest of the time and the rest of the day going through Scripture looking for gentleness, and it's everywhere. It is a powerful, powerful thing. I'm I'm, going to wind this down here, so hang with. I want to give a practical consideration for us. Reaction versus response. It's a practical thing, and some of you are well aware of this. There is a major difference between a reaction and a response. And what I'm talking about is if you're in a conversation, if you're in a circumstance, and something happens, what do you do with that? Somebody says something to you. Somebody says something to somebody else. Something happens, and now you have an opportunity to react or to respond, and they're different. Let me explain it. Reaction. A reaction is instant. It's driven by the beliefs, biases, and prejudices 
of the unconscious mind. It's really what is down there, the natural inclinations. When you say or do something without thinking, that's the unconscious mind running the show. A reaction is based in the moment and does not take into consideration long-term effects of what you do or say. A reaction is survival-oriented and on some level a defense mechanism. It might turn out okay, but often a reaction is something you regret later. You may have won in the moment, but you lost the war. You might have had to defend yourself, and you did, doggone it. You defended yourself. And in the process, you steamrolled somebody else. Remember what the definition we talked about at the beginning is? A genuine concern for others. A reaction. How about a response? A response, on the other hand, usually comes more slowly. It's based on information from both the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. So the conscious, you're aware of it. You know exactly what is going on, and so you're a little more intentional and deliberate in how you respond to the situation. A response will be more ecological, meaning that it takes into consideration the well-being of not only you, but those around you. It weighs the long-term effects and stays in line with your core values. Core values meaning worldview, submitting to the will of the Father, that I'm on this earth to glorify him in my life and to serve him and to give my body up as a living sacrifice. That is my core value. And so as I have opportunity to respond to a circumstance, whether it's a comment made and it's offensive to me, I don't have a knee-jerk reaction and just hit back. But I think about it instead. I'm aware of what I'm going to say and how it's going to come across to the people around me. It's a very excellent, I'm telling you, it's, it's, I, this has helped me so much. I don't remember when I learned about this, but it was a, long, it was a while back, but I've never forgotten it. Doesn't mean I always do it right. Because the flesh is stinky, boy. It is stinky, isn't it? The flesh wants to preserve me. It wants to defend me. It wants to make me feel good about myself. It's all wrapped up in pride and arrogance and all about me, me, me. And that's what a reaction usually is. But how about a response? It is thoughtful. It's aware. It is gentle. Proverbs 14, 29, whoever is slow to anger and has great understanding, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. There it is. Gentle, we're called to gentleness. For the past few years, the atmosphere in our society seems to be deteriorating, doesn't it? As stuff gets more volatile, It gets more explosive, it gets more angry, it's becoming more polarized. Even in our midst, you all, even in the church, this is happening. It ought not be, but it is. I can't think of a time when gentleness is more needed than in these days. 
We are called to gentleness. Let me end with this verse. These verses out of James 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. And maybe these things be true of us, IBC family. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. My brothers and sisters, may this be true of us. May it be true of us as a church. May it be true of us as individuals. That we are agents of righteousness and peace through our gentleness. It's not weakness. It is much power that is wielded rightly and in genuine consideration of others to help draw them into a relationship with the Father. And may we continue to encourage one another in this way. Let's pray, and then we're gonna sing. Would you bow with me? Lord, uh, oh, how we need you. How we need you, Lord, as we study gentleness. You are gentle. Oh, how thankful we are, Lord, that you are gentle. Because what we deserve, Lord, is to be crushed and stamped, punished. We are a sinful people, Lord. But by the grace of you, Lord God, by your grace, (laughs) you sent Jesus, your son, to die in our place that our sins might be forgiven. You raised him from the dead, Lord, that we might have victory over sin that it may have no hold on us any longer. Oh, but Lord, we still war. We're at war with our flesh and with the world and all these things that are going on around us. But Lord, as we, as we study the fruit of your Holy Spirit, we see opportunity, Lord, for your light to shine brightly in a dark world, in a chaotic and fearful world. Oh, Lord, help us by your Spirit to be your agents of gentleness, of light, of hope, of peace, of love, of kindness, of faithfulness. For your glory, Lord, for your glory only. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 